The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Ah, welcome to Scorebox, my final one of the year. Uh, you're joined by myself, Steve Cedric, and the wonderful Karen Cho, and these are your headlines. The S&P tops 3,200 for the first time ever. As the U.S. Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin tells CNBC, the phase one trade deal with China should be rubber stamped next month. I'm very confident. So it's just going through what I would consider to be a technical legal scrub. And uh, we'll be releasing the document and signing it in, in the beginning of January. Andrew Bailey will reportedly become the new governor of the Bank of England, with the FCA boss expected to take the reins in early February. The European Commission's new economy chief tells CNBC exclusively that slow growth in the bloc will continue and solving the problem can't be done to monetary policy alone. We have to try to coordinate our fiscal policies uh, at, a, at the better level possible to face this new situation. President Trump calls for a speedy Senate impeachment trial as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi holds up the process in an effort to press Republicans to meet Democrat demands. Six straight to record high for the S&P 500 and peaks across the major indices again as stocks continue to bounce towards high levels towards the end of this year. And uh, the question all week has been how much more risk are investors willing to take on at this point, given the year-to-date levels? And if you just take a quick look at some of the levels, almost 34% higher for the Nasdaq, closely behind about 28% for the S&P 500, about 21 uh, to 22% roughly for the Dow. So very strong levels already achieved for the major indices but uh, again just stretching for a little bit more and what investors are leaning into effectively around trade uh, more comments from Stephen Mnuchin suggesting that the US and China will sign their phase one trade deal pact in January also movement around the uh, agreement for North America the US House of Representatives approving the new American North American deal that leaves 1.2 trillion dollars in annual US Mexican Canadian trade flows intact so positive signals on the trade front uh, that was well and truly welcomed by markets. And in terms of uh, the individual components of the market, worth noting what was bouncing in session for the Dow, about uh, four different stocks at record levels. Johnson & Johnson at a new 52-week high. Merck also bouncing United Health and Nike. So various different parts of the market uh, contributing to some of the gains. I want to take you to the US dollar. We've seen a little bit of recovery trade for the basket uh, of the dollar index, uh, given there's been such a weakening in sterling in uh, recent days this week and this morning if you look at the, the different uh, levels we've got the dollar on the back foot versus the Chinese currency bit of trade talk positive for the Chinese currency dollar weakening versus the Japanese yen at this point to 109.32 the handle you're on the back foot versus the dollar so the dollar is gaining versus uh, the 111 mark we've got for euro and at this point uh, sterling trying to pick up a little bit of steam after fairly significant falls and you can see now hugging the 130 handle not sure how many of you saw that uh, as we started the week the falls more than two percent of the course of trade let me take you to the Asian markets and you can see uh, how we're tracking in the Friday session Reading for the 
the Chinese markets. In contrast to some of that record level, the green that you saw on Wall Street, the Asian markets not willing to run too much higher at this point, at the exception of Hong Kong, which has put in about 59 points or two tenths of a percent. If you talk about window dressing, Hong Kong, of course, has been a very challenging market to, to try and navigate this year with the protests on the ground. I want to take you to the opening calls in Europe. The early picture is mostly firmer across on the core markets of Germany and France, a little bit too on the Italian market, triple digit point day anticipated. So uh, a move into the green, modest tick high anticipated, but uh, one red arrow for the UK stock market. That's been interesting that we've got a little bit of weakness there when we've got that 130 handle on sterling, Steve. Yeah, although to be fair, it has had a what 250 point rally. Uh, as sterling's had its demise on the back of that uh, that inverse reaction we get from the dollar earners. Um, yeah, right, great summary. Um, US Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin says he is confident that an interim trade deal with China... How many times, Karen, have we had Mnuchin, Lighthizer, uh, Trump, all of them confident... Uh, uh, Mr Cudlow, our dear... Uh, ex-colleague going, we're really confident a deal will get signed. How many times can the market rally on they're confident a deal will get signed? Right to my last show of the year. We're in a message chamber on a phase one trade deal, but also in the calls for fiscal policy to do more than monetary policy. The two themes are being repeated every single day, effectively. And you all buy it, don't you? (laughs) You've already had, or if you haven't, you've missed it. Uh, Anyway, he's confident that an interim trade deal with China will be signed in early January. Mr. Mnuchin said the so-called phase one agreement has already been translated uh, and is going through a technical review. The deal announced last week includes tariff relief, uh, increased agricultural purchases, some questions over that, and tighter protections on US intellectual property. Mr. Mnuchin told CNBC that the framework of the deal cannot be altered. It's not that it's it's open to renegotiation or that there are any open issues. Um, the enforcement chapter is one of the critical parts to this agreement. For the first time, we have binding enforcement. There will be a, a mechanism, as we've described in both countries, that as there are issues, they'll be elevated. There'll be teams of people in both countries that first will try to resolve these issues. Uh, but if for whatever reason they can't be resolved, the president maintains the authority to put tariffs on to enforce the agreement. What needs to be seen in terms of enforcement and China actually carrying through on its promises uh, for phase two to start being worked out? Well, I, I think our priority for the moment is to implement phase one, but uh, we, we are prepared to, to work hard on phase two. So, you know, again, our, our first priority is phase one. This is an enormous opportunity for U.S. companies. And for the first time to have an enforceable agreement with China, as I said, Ambassador Lighthizer just did an outstanding job leading these negotiations. Guy Foster, group head of research at Bruin Dolphin, joins us for his last day of the working year. It's been quite a year. I said to Guy before we were well, <laughs> you were well, wrapping up. I said, what a year. And I think probably because of the elongation of European and domestic UK political events has checkered my view of the year. Whereas he's going, yeah, but it's been a good year. And you're right. And I'm wrong because actually there's progress Gosh, on politics. Last day of the but, year, you're saying you're wrong. Well, ish. <laughs> It was just a premise to go to the conversation rather than actually a, a full mayor culpa, Karen. I don't want you to think I'm going there. But anyway, Guy, yes, there was a degree of, of... Because actually, if you own this stuff, you've done stunningly well this year. Do you think the underlying politics, economics, 
market fundamentals have justified these extraordinary moves to the upside, especially on US assets? I mean, it's, um, it's so difficult not to sound trite about this stuff, isn't it? But it's been like the, the classic climb a wall of worry uh, kind of year. I mean, I guess beyond the politics, it was, it was the economics that, was, uh, that would always seem like the most challenging well, sort of factor. The economics didn't really move this. This is the unbelievable thing. For all of the oscillation and the mid-cycle adjustment we saw, for all of the... Uh, hand-wringing over the Fed in rate hike mode this time last year and rate cut mode in the first part of this year and now rates hold. The economics didn't move that much. If you look at unemployment, if you look at wage inflation, if you look at GDP, if you look at the survey data, actually they were rather consistent. It's only the markets that moved aggressively. Um, except the manufacturing sector. Well, the manufacturing sector went south. Yes, but had been going, it's just a continuation of the ongoing trend. No, that's right. So you came into, the, came into the year with a very different set of economic expectations from the ones that had been, I mean, we're sort of ancient history now, but from the sort of summer of 2018, obviously there was that, that big sort of growth shock and the manufacturing sector lost a lot of momentum and the yield curve was inverting. And I guess that's what, that's what people would have been worried was going to be the story of, of 2019. Mm. And, you know, we discussed this... I guess earlier earlier in the year, you know whether the features were or were not there for this to actually be the the absolute end of the cycle. And obviously, you know the good thing, the reason why I'm slightly more upbeat about the way the year's gone than you are, is that <laughs> actually, you know, uh, the, the 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 playbook still still works. Yeah, that yes, and, and sort the fact of, you haven't spent half your year on Abingdon well, Green. Speaking <laughs> of the playbook, and what jumps out to me after such a big turbulent year, you still had an outperformance from technology. The Nasdaq well and truly outperforming the Dow, for instance, and with mm. all the noise and a trade war potentially morphing into a tech war, you still saw very stunning returns. Is there something embedded in what we've witnessed, whether it's rate cuts that might be supported for more risk on assets, whether it's the move towards digitization, the strength of the technology earnings that stand out? Is there anything in this to suggest that 2020 looks the same where the Nasdaq or technology will outperform other components of the market? Well, the potential and expected re-acceleration of manufacturing is probably the biggest headwind for, uh, for the technology sector. I mean, it's the, it, th this year has been a bit like this cycle, ultimately, in that growth expectations have been a bit softer than they had been, and therefore policy has been a bit looser and that's really helped those kind of long duration assets uh, like technology or particularly the kind of the software aspects of technology. But going into next year, obviously a big debate, big debate that everyone's focusing on is like cyclicals versus defensives, value versus growth, however, however you want to uh, characterise it just takes me to the point around cyclicals and manufacturing and really re-acceleration in manufacturing. Why isn't that not good news for technology? Could you not see an, an acceleration in the digitization process, some of the software upgrades that you've mentioned, whether there is spending that might be accelerated in the C-suite because of a better cyclical backdrop for manufacturing? Well, yeah, so there's a that's a di the corporate investment cycle is different from the inventory cycle that, uh, you know, that we've just experienced a bit of a, a bit of a slowdown in. So, I mean, Yes it, yes, it can, and that would be a, a, a classic kind of late cycle pit, uh, phase. But the important thing is that when the inventory cycle is on the up, then that's when the, the, the more uh, volatile, uh, more cyclical stocks, the, the inventory cyclical stocks, 
tend to perform the best and then they'll overshadow other parts of the market, whereas you tend to go to the long duration assets as a, as a form of, uh, of defence against the weakness in other parts of the market. Talking of getting things wrong, you mentioned oh. the yield. No, no, not you. No, not you. Don't worry, I'm not, I'm not picking up. It's a bit early for that. This is the, this is, no, not really. I can start on anyone at any time. Trust me. Uh, he's trying living with me. Um, in fact, don't bother. It's, it's, it's all right. Um, uh, look look at this. Look at this. You mentioned this, only because here's the 210, yeah? That yeah. looks like uh, you know a, a positive yield curve, 163 to 192. You said about the inverted yield curve we had earlier in the year. So they were wrong. The guys who had the, inver- the, the the yield curve inversion, which is supposed to be pretty damn foolproof for this market, indicating recession. So all those guys and ladies and gentlemen in bond world got it wrong, yeah? Well, Because we didn't have the recession or we got delayed recession. Uh, it, it, the, the, the point with the curve is that it's pretty flat, right? It's It, it, it inverted. So, but I mean, the, again... Hang on, hang on. We had an inverted yield curve mm. and it didn't lead to a recession. No, it's true, which is a bit like 1998, I so guess. So they got is, it wrong. So that foolproof... And you're, you'd have to well, defend it, it, by the way. You're, you're, you didn't do it. No, I know. <laughs> I, I, you're, you're absolutely right in that observation. <laughs> However, I think anybody who was drawing that conclusion would yeah. say that it inverted yeah. for about I, two and a half days in 1998. <laughs> so it was, never, it was never absolutely foolproof. Right. But in this instance as well, you know, what it tells you is when the curve... When the curve is flat, there's not much capacity in the economy and therefore a recession at some stage within the next six six months to two years is more likely than it had been before. So not quite as foolproof as we might like it to be. We'll have a look at 2020 in a bit, but we've got you for the full hour as well. And I I do understand there's a lovely cup of tea coming your way as well. No no expense spared for our guests. Hopefully as well. Well, China left its benchmark one-year lending rate unchanged in December. The decision comes after Chinese Premier Li Keqiang warned of downward pressure on the economy due to trade tensions and slowing demand. Early this week, Li promised to take measures to keep growth within a reasonable range. Chinese President Xi Jinping has heaped praise on Macau for its loyalty and patriotism as he swore in a new pro-Beijing government in the special territory. Speaking at a ceremony marking the 20th anniversary of Macau's handover to China, she warned Beijing would not allow foreign forces to interfere in its one country, two systems policy. I wish to stress that with the return of Hong Kong and Macau to the motherland, The handling of affairs in the two special administrative regions is strictly China's internal matter. There is no need for any external force to dictate things to us. Emily is in Macau and joins us now. Emily, you've been living through the protests in Hong Kong week by week and uh, you've been seeing some of the messaging on the ground there in Macau. What jumps out to you about what China is trying to achieve with this uh, very big ceremony and the speech that has been giving on the ground there? Uh, that's right, Karen. Uh, just uh, the remarks that you heard from President Xi, some were suggesting uh, that was a more uh, focused to Hong Kong or directed at Hong Kong than Macau uh, in the interference uh, by international forces. Because uh, just recently we've had the United States and the lawmakers there enact a law on the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act. But President Xi Jinping is in Macau to mark the 20th anniversary of the handover back to Chinese rule of Macau. And uh, with that praising Macau, for uh, successfully implementing the one country, two systems principle. Uh, in this time, we've seen a tremendous growth in Macau's economy, a uh, very gaming dependent. 80% of the revenues come from uh, that sector, and it has grown since 2002 when 
the monopoly was broken down. Uh, gross gaming revenues of about $2.7 billion, peaking out in 2013, almost $45 billion U.S. dollars. It has come back uh, since then, but still in excess of $37.7 billion for the year 2018. Uh, so there have been calls for a diversification of the economy uh, here to basically ensure continued growth in the territory. We got a chance to speak to the market leader, Sands China. They control 23% of the market share here uh, in Macau. Uh, they were the ones that created the Venetian, and that is the world's largest casino. Just over my shoulder, you should be able to see it. I got a chance to speak to the company's president, Wilfred Wong, and I asked him, in this uh, celebration of the 20th anniversary, a lot of comparisons being drawn between Hong Kong and Macau. What was the key to Macau's success? This is what he had to say. Macau's ability to really execute the one country, two systems. Uh, this is a total concept. Uh, you have to respect the one country notion, but at the same time, the Central People's Government uh, uh, helps Macau to realize the two systems. Uh, so uh, I think Macau is a very good example of how one country, two systems can work. According to President Xi Jinping, Macau is the world's second biggest in terms of per capita GDP, uh, boosted by its uh, gaming economy. Uh, what it what is generated in one week here in Macau takes Las Vegas an entire month. So that, of course, solidifying Macau as the world's gaming capital of the world, and it overtook Las Vegas back in 2006. Uh, so uh, lots of celebrations uh, this past couple of days. President Xi Jinping wrapping up his three-day visit here to the Enclave. He is expected to be departing uh, this afternoon within a couple of hours. Back to you guys. Excellent. Thank you very much indeed for that great reporting out there. Right. OK, coming up on the show, one of London's most experienced financial regulators is tipped, heavily tipped. We're seeing all kinds of tips on this one. Anyway, he's tipped to become the new governor of the Bank of England. Find out who coming up next. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. Andrew Bailey is set to replace Mark Carney as Bank of England governor, according to several media reports. Bailey worked at the central bank for three decades before becoming chief executive at the UK's Financial Conduct Authority. There were as many as six candidates considered for the role, including two deputy governors. However, Bailey's handling of the financial crisis and the collapse of bearings while he was at the BOE likely gave him the edge. UK Chancellor Sajid Javid will reportedly announce the appointment later on today. It will be a difficult role for whoever takes charge. The Bank of England was split on Thursday's decision to hold rates with two policymakers pushing for a cut. The BOE said there is little chance of significant growth this quarter as the Brexit uncertainty rumbles on. Meanwhile, the central bank must tackle new revelations that high-speed traders are hacking the audio feed from the BOE press conferences 
to gain an edge in the market. Right, well, um, two very different issues, Guy Foster. Yeah. Um, we know, I mean, we, anyone who's read Michael Lewis and uh, Fast Boys, I think it was called, knows that the hedge fund community will try anything they can to get faster information. Now, whether people have overstepped the mark and there's illegality there, we'll park that idea for the moment. But that is one story. But what I'm more interested in, to be honest, is the role of Andrew Bailey or whoever becomes the next governor of the Bank of England. We think it's Andrew Bailey. Well, it's an interesting crossover, isn't it? Because the FCA are looking into that. So it's kind of moving from his current job to his, his new, new job. Exactly. So, so my take on this is <sighs> Mr Carney has had to do very little in terms of moving rates during his tenure. I mean, but he's had two other roles. One is to make sure that the plumbing in the system looks okay. Uh, and two, to reassure markets that actually the Bank of England can handle, but in a Draghi-esque fashion, can mm. handle things when they go wrong as well. So on those two points, is the Bank of England plumbing, uh, is the situation with the plumbing, is it in good fettle? Is it in fine fettle? Because as we know, during the financial crisis, when you had the, the uh, Exchequer, when you had the FCA and you had the Bank of England, there were cracks that things were slipping through. Do yeah. you feel confident that the Bank of England has got a handle on stuff now? Then I think that, that's the impression. Um, but obviously, I think a lot of that comes down to the demeanour and the, um, the obvious attention that Mark Carney has, pay, uh, has, has played, uh, paid to this particular area. Um, but, you know, I guess the, the fortunate thing is that we haven't really had to test whether whether that is, is the case or isn't the case. And, and also, when there is so much focus put on one particular scenario or one range of scenarios associated with Brexit, you obviously wonder what areas might, might, might be neglected. So he has been dragged into Brexit mm. and he was accused by Brexiteers of being part of Project Doom. Yeah. The thing I will say is, regardless of the, the, that policy, I think when we had the Brexit vote, let me get my date right, 23rd of June 2016, in the days following it, George Osborne was sulking. You didn't see David Cameron for love nor money. And I thought Mr Carney was one of the few people who stood up and said, don't worry, we can handle this. The UK economy is fine. We will kind of yeah. do what I have to do. And I was actually very impressed with him then, I have to say. Yeah, and he... <laughs> is clearly not a fan of Brexit, but he has clearly made sure that, or he, he certainly made it clear that he's placed a great deal of effort on making sure that the UK would be resilient to whatever Brexit scenario happened to come along. I want to pick up on the idea of a crisis, because it may not be Brexit that uh, he ends up dealing with. If you think about Bailey being the chief cashier back in the global financial crisis, will he be dealing with another one? Because the tenure, it's a very long-term job. It's eight years. Mm. So if you look out until 2027, 28, can we almost 100% say we will have a recession at some point between now and then? Uh, I think that's probably a reasonable a reasonable assumption, but there's a difference between having a recession and a financial crisis. Obviously, and I think again, uh, a reasonable but probably not quite such confident as, uh, um, assumption would be that actually the next recession will be a bit more conventional, a bit more business cycle related, and won't necessarily have that big kind of. I'm glad you're so relaxed about this because we've got record debt levels, and that's with what households and with countries. And then putting someone in a position where they have some experience over a downturn, I think is quite key at this point. I don't think it's going to be an easy type of recession to navigate. Having someone with fairly significant experience, knowing all the policy options, and be able to rely on those policy options pretty quickly, I think might be quite central. I'm sure that's the reason why Andrew has ended up being 
the foremost candidate um, again, you know, against what was obviously quite quite a, a wide field. And I guess it's because of that importance um, and because of the experience that he's got. Yeah. It, very interesting looking at the other candidates. We can talk about this a little bit later on, I guess, when we get the announcement. It'll probably be after your time. We understand. We think it's going to be towards the end of this show. Uh, Jared Lyons, of course, uh, very close to the Brexit process. And yeah. Shafiq. Um, I, I interviewed them both. They're both incredibly competent as well. Um, apparently, the former didn't interview so well, and the latter's views on Brexit went against her as well. So there you can see on the left-hand side, Minu Shafiq, and in the central, centre-right, uh, is Gerard Lyons. Uh, the British Parliament will vote on Prime Minister Boris Johnson's Brexit deal later today after winning a significant majority in last week's general election. Mr Johnson's withdrawal bill is expected to pass without any significant opposition. The legislation will ratify the UK's departure on the 31st of January uh, and seeks to block any chance of extending post-Brexit trade talks with the EU beyond the end of 2020, even if no deal has been reached. But I think there is a degree of ambiguity in that. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.